to The Black Madonna Speaks with me, your host, Stephanie Georgiev. Thank you so much for spending your valuable time with me. And before we get started, I want to give a special shout out to my wonderful Patreon supporters. Your multi-leveled support means the world to me, and this podcast would not be possible without you. Thanks also to all who subscribe, like, and share. And for those who reach out to me, I really enjoy the individuals who follow The Black Madonna Speaks. You're all quite extraordinary human beings who make our current times interesting, creative, and help to contribute your gifts to us all. Other fun announcements? I've recently been interviewed for the Anthroposophical Conversations podcast for the Johannesburg Anthroposophical Society, and the link for the podcast is in the program notes. I've also had an answer to prayers. The Black Madonna Speaks will now be on Amazon Music and Audible. To be honest, this was a prayer and intention for a long while. So much of a long while, I actually had forgotten that I wanted to make the Black Madonna Speaks available through this platform. So out of the blue, I receive a random email. Thank goodness it didn't go to promotions or spam, inviting me to participate uh, as the podcast people uh, through Amazon and Audible were aware of the podcast and wanted me to be part of the offerings. So one more instance that sometimes even forgotten prayers are answered. (laughs) My hope is that the podcast becomes even more widely distributed through this method. And the goal of this podcast is to spread the healing impulse of the images of the divine feminine as presented through the Virgin Mary and specifically the Black Madonna. The healing messages are so needed during this time, and I am honored and grateful to you, my listeners, for making this gesture possible. Many of my long-term listeners are familiar with my orientation towards the Black Madonna. I call this theme the never-ending story because the so-called divine, mystical, and delightfully dark labyrinth I have had the joy of exploring when it comes to all things Black Madonna, is a never-ending source of fascination, leading to deep gratitude for all the spiritual world gifts us. This journey also gives me a context for comprehending the human condition. You know, while not diminishing the dramatic and often painful nature of our times, With the Black Madonna as my mysterious soul companion, the journey has been a profound and satisfying one on every level. My hope and prayer is that you experience the same things. As I've been delving deeper into the mysteries of ancient Christianity, as well as the evolution of art, spirit, and consciousness, it has intrigued me as to the underlying significance of the Black Madonna in European settings. How did these dark image of the Holy Mother and Child make its way to the European continent? And more significantly is why and what does it mean? For this episode, we'll be exploring one of the ancient sites of Asia Minor and its contribution to 
the evolution of the Black Madonna as both an art form as well as a spiritual force through several continents. This exploration will give some insight into what I like to term the evolution of the mysteries. While the term syncretism is an important one, syncretism meaning the combination of different forms of belief or practice, the fusion of two or more originally different inflectional forms in terms of understanding both Christianity as well as the position and purpose of the Virgin Mary. I feel the term syncretism essentially denies the profound meaning of evolution. I feel this way because I do not think the Virgin Mary and her task on earth, as well as in the spiritual world, is simply that of an ancient goddess myth with a new outfit and title. One of the tenets of anthroposophy in general, and anthroposophical Christology specifically, is that everything evolves. It is a bit amusing and puzzling why certain approaches to Christianity deny evolution, while materialistic science denies the existence of spirit. The topic is one of endless possibilities and far beyond the scope of this small episode, but I feel stating that the cosmos evolves, we humans evolve, spirituality and the divine world also evolves, are important foundations for the topic of this episode of The Black Madonna Speaks, which is Artemis, Ephesus, and the Black Madonna. Ephesus was a city in ancient Greece on the coast of Ionia, about three kilometers or maybe two miles southwest of the present-day Selsuk in Izmir province, an apology to my dear Turkish listeners for my pronunciation of your city. Ionia was an ancient region on the western coast of Anatolia to the south of the present-day Izmir, Turkey. Ephesus was built in the 10th century BC on the site of Apasa, the former Arzwan capital by Attic and Ionian Greek colonists. During the classical Greek era, it was one of the 12 cities that were members of the Ionian League. The city came under the control of the Roman Republic in 129 BC. This city that was famous in its day for the nearby temple of Artemis, which was completed about 550 BC. And this temple has been designated as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus was the recipient city of one of the epistles of Paul, which is better known as Ephesians. Ephesus is also one of the seven churches of Asia, which is addressed in the book of Revelation. Numerous Bible scholars feel that the Gospel of John may have been written there. It was the site of several 5th century Christian ecumenical councils, which figured prominently in the evolution of the church, specifically how organized Christianity viewed and accepted the Virgin Mary. 
The city of Ephesus had great significance in the ancient world. As a port city in ancient times, it was a center for trade connecting Asia Minor, North Africa, and Europe. Many cultures and ethnic groups flocked to Ephesus for a variety of reasons. During its Roman era, it was considered the third most prominent Roman city within the empire behind Rome and Alexandria. Many ancient poets and chroniclers proclaimed the glory of Ephesus. Some scholars have reason to believe, in addition to many religions and cults present in ancient Ephesus, that the mystical Jewish sect of the Essenes had a presence there as well. Ephesus had a long tradition of religious worship of female deities. First of them had been a local Anatolian goddess, Kibli or Sibylle, depending on how you want to pronounce the sea, who was later merged with the Greek goddess Artemis. Artemis was worshipped at Ephesus since the 11th century BC. According to her myth, she was actually born there as the first of twins and helped her mother deliver her brother Apollo. The Temple of Artemis had several iterations, the first one being built in the 8th century BC. This was made out of clay and was destroyed in around 700 BC by a flood. The second major temple was built in 550 and it was thought to be the first temple made out of marble. The temple was 115 meters or 377 feet long and 46 meters or 150 feet wide. And supposedly it was the first Greek temple built out of marble. I guess they didn't want to lose it in a flood. Its columns stood 40 feet or 13 meters high in double rows that formed a wide ceremonial passage around an inner chamber that housed the goddess's cult image. 36 of these columns were decorated by carvings in relief and a new ebony or blackened grape wood cult statue was then sculpted by Endiosos, a famous artist of the era. It's note, it's actually quite significant that this temple was destroyed in 356 BC, the same year that Alexander the Great was born. Some chroniclers place the destruction on the very same day of Alexander's birth. While he was just a newborn during the destruction of the second temple, when he became emperor, Alexander offered to pay for the temple's rebuilding. The Ephesians tactfully refused, saying, quote, it would be improper for one god to build a temple to another. And I'm sure that went quite far with Alexander, because in those days, emperors were considered gods. The Ephesians eventually rebuilt Artemis's temple after his death at their own expense. Work started in 323 BC and continued for many years. The third temple was larger than the second. In fact, Pliny the Elder, that most famous of Roman chroniclers who lived from AD 23 through 79, reported that this temple, 
was 137 meters or 400 feet long by 69 meters or 225 feet wide. And it was uh, 18 meters or 60 feet high with more than 127 columns. The Goths, apparently predating Napoleonic soldiers by nearly 1,500 years with zeal to burn and pillage anything related to darkly colored feminine deities, destroyed this temple in 268 AD. The cult thrived in spite of having its temple destroyed once again, but had to close down for good in the early 400s because, hey, a hundred years after the official recognition of Christians by the Roman Empire, and when the persecutions ended, the Christians thought it was a good idea to persecute the pagans and force the temple out of commission. As stated before, Artemis was worshipped from ancient times. Some scholars say there were different names, such as Diana or Soteria. Artemis has been associated with fertility, childbirth, as well as virginity. Apparently, Artemis watched her mother Leto writhe in childbirth for several days before Apollo came forth. So she did not want to go through that experience personally, hence her dedication to virginity. In any case, she was called upon to assist women during their labors. Artemis was seen as the protector of Ephesus. It is of note that her temple, while holding cultic practices and festivals, was also a bank where Ephesians and others could deposit their money for safekeeping. Scholars think some of the groups that served in the bank as temple tellers were Essenes of Palestine. This is also interesting to me personally, as so many modern bank buildings really do look like Greek temples. It is of note that festivals of Artemis were celebrated in Ephesus as well as her temple, which was outside the city walls. Her temple had a theater where various forms of music, dance, sport, and drama were conducted. Processions would take place on her birthday where large, dark statues of her would lead processions to her temple. Once reached, money was distributed to the faithful. The main festivals were the Artemision, which occurred for the entire month of March in honor of Artemis, and the Tarilon, which was the entire month of May, where both Artemis and Apollo's birthdays were were celebrated. Ephesus closed down during these months to allow processions, spectacles, rituals, athletic competitions, and theatrical events to take place. While most businesses closed, the temple and supporting organizations such as inns and those selling images and paraphernalia for the festivals did a brisk business. So much so that as Christianity took hold, especially during the time of Paul's evangelization of Ephesus, the silversmiths saw the emerging cult as a direct hit to business. This was because Paul preached that God was not made by human hands. Such concepts resulted in a protest by the Silversmith Artisan Guild. Riots ensued and Paul promptly left the city 
after residing in Ephesus for a few years. This story can be found in Acts 19, verse 23 through 41. The Artemis cult, as I said, gradually fell out of favor throughout the 300s, with the temple of Artemis closing down for good in the early 400s. Of note is that the Third Ecumenical Council took place in Ephesus in 431 AD. It took place in the Church of the Virgin Mary, which was built near the Temple of Artemis. The Church of the Virgin Mary in Ephesus was the first church in Christendom dedicated to the Mother of Christ. It is also the most significant building from Christian times in Ephesus. It was erected in the third century uh, within an er earlier building, so it was sort of inside an existing temple. And there was a very special reason why the church in Ephesus was dedicated to Mary. According to local traditions, and note there are several different legends regarding Mary, but there are also several different legends regarding where Mary went after the event at Golgotha. For our purposes, it is of note that Mary, the mother of Jesus, arrived in Ephesus together with St. John and spent the last years of her life there. Although there is no decisive historical evidence to support this belief, there are some clues and traditions that point to the validity of Mary spending her last days in Ephesus. The most significant one is the documentative evidence that John the Evangelist lived in Ephesus. As the author of John's Gospel, the Revelation, and three epistles, uh, and he wrote them in Ephesus, he was also buried in this city, and a basilica was erected in his name. We know from one of the statements of Christ on the cross, where he says to Mary, Woman, here is your son, and to John, here is your mother. From that time on, John took her into his home. So it follows that Mary would have joined John as he went to Ephesus. According to tradition recorded by Arrhenius and Eusebius of Caesarea, John later came to Ephesus where he worked and finally died. Nevertheless, the traditional belief that St. Mary resided and died in Ephesus has been accepted until present time. Now, in the third century of the Common Era, times of economic crisis began in Ephesus. And during this period, the local Christian community built its first church, which it would eventually become the Church of Mary. However, its builders used an older structure that had been used by pagan cults of the city's past. One of the most significant events in the history of Ephesus, the Third Ecumenical Council, also known as the Council of Ephesus, was convened in 431 by Emperor Theodosius the Younger. Apparently there was a Theodosius the Elder. But anyways, Theodosius, Theodosius the Younger uh, had this council in the Church of St. Mary. And the delegates arrived from as far as Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch, with 250 clergy and theologians in attendance. 
The purpose of this council was to settle the dispute caused by Nestorius on the understanding of the nature of the person of Jesus. And here we dip our toe into this very complicated, lengthy, and contentious debate focusing on the nature of Christ. Was he a human? Was he a god? Could he be both? Was one dominant? Was another? Etc., etc. Among others discussed, other issues discussed at this council, there was a dispute concerning the title of Mary as the mother of God or the mother of Christ. The council opted for the first version, establishing an extraordinarily theological relationship between Mary and Christ. Thus, Mary has always been strongly linked to Ephesus through the decision of the council where she got her title, Theotokos, or God-bearer. While the seat of the bishop was transferred from this church to St. John's Basilica, possibly in the 7th century, the Church of Mary functioned later as a cemetery church only. The church was rebuilt several times due to various destructions. So the structure we see today, and it's basically some columns and a doorway, um, a stone. So it's, it's basically ruins. Um, but the structure we see today does not reflect the appearance of the church at the time of the Council, council of Ephesus or later even the 8th century building. Instead, the ruins that we see now represent the late Byzantine period when the domed church fell into ruin and was eventually abandoned. I always say it was abandoned due to lack of interest. Now, this was replaced by the new basilica of much smaller dimensions built into the space of the old church. And the new church had the entrance through the apse of the old one where the opening was cut. And this new structure did not have the colonnades, but walled up arcades, um, as the, did the original structure. And it was uh, constructed with reused materials of various kinds. Ephesus, due to, its, due to the literal sands of time, meaning the port city lost access to the sea due to silt buildup, and you can't get your boats to Ephesus if it's all sand, is now an archaeological site. It's actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's about seven kilometers from the city of Sel Selkuk in Turkey. And again, apologies for my pronunciation. The house where Mary spent her last days on earth, if you accept this version of her narrative, is in the vicinity of the ruins of Ephesus. The house was discovered in the 19th century by following the descriptions and directions in the reported visions of Anne Catherine Emmerich. And she lived between 1774 and 1824. And she, for those of you who are familiar with her, was a Roman Catholic nun and visionary. And she was also German. Now, Emmerich had daily visions of all aspects of the life of Christ in chronological order, which included dates, locations, and events. 
and these were documented by an Italian guy named Clemens Brentano, and uh, he basically took notes on her visions. He sat with her for several years, and every day they would sit together and she would dictate her visions. And, and in modern language, it would say on whatever date it was at two o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus had lunch with so-and-so person. That's how specific these visions are. And um, what's also interesting is after her death, all of these were published by Brentano in a book, and you can get these books. There's, there's a series of four books, and they're really descriptive. Like I said, they're hugely descriptive and quite, quite fascinating because not only does she go through, you know, the life of Jesus, his ministry, she documents a lot of other people like Mary Magdalene and the Virgin Mary and Joseph and various disciples and gives copious detail into everything. These books are not what I call casual bedtime reading. Now, Robert Powell, a lovely gentleman who has many, many books, and he's also an astrosopher, he did his PhD dissertation on the writings of Emmerich's visions. And what he did was that he calculated the exact dates of all the different things that Emmerich was saying, because she gave the dates in Hebrew terms. So Hebrew months, which we don't use in, in our, our way of being. So she would give the dates in, in, in Hebrew uh, calendar terms and times, which obviously happened in Palestine. And what he did was he translated these dates and times into our understanding of the, the events in terms like it would happen in a Jewish calendar date of such and so. And then he would say, OK, well, this was at this point in history, like, I don't know, 34 A.D. on a Wednesday or something like that. And then he would figure out the exact date, time, and location, and then look at what the heavens were doing at that time. And I, his dissertation was basically during the uh, three and a half years of Christ's mission on earth. And his book, which I highly recommend, you can get in hardback as well as e-book, e is called The Chronicle of the Living, Living Christ. And something that really hit him, but it also has been quite the miracle, is that Anne Catherine Emmerich's exact description and directions to find this house of Mary, which is located in what is now modern Turkey, are absolutely remarkable. And again, I'm not saying this is what she said, but they would say, okay, she had a living room with two windows, and, and it's this many, you know, kilometers from, or whatever they did back then, from such and so thing, or there was a tree or whatever. And she would give exact directions and descriptions. And in the 1800s, people took her word 
and they found this house. So it's really, to me, that's really, it defies explanation, to say the least. Now, uh, Emmerich never visited this house or went even outside of her village or her convent. And pilgrims have visited this house based on the belief that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was taken to this stone house by St. John's and lived there for the remainder of her earthly life. And this is what Anne Catherine Emick also says. Now, when the, the Catholic Church has never officially recognized either in favor or against the authenticity of this house, so they're, they're officially silent, um, which speaks volumes, if you ask me, and the site has nevertheless, even though it hasn't been officially sanctioned or condemned by the Catholic Church, uh, the site has nevertheless received a steady flow of pilgrims since its discovery in the 1800s. Now, Anne Catherine Emmerich was beautified by the Pope, Pope John Paul II on October 3rd, 2004. So... All of this I just find endlessly fascinating, and it is very interesting to me, the events and traditions in Ephesus and how they all seem to relate to one another. Rudolf Steiner has a few things to say about Ephesus, and the following quotes are from a cycle of lectures called World History in the Light of Anthroposophy. And there's a couple lectures that actually refer to the mystery traditions in Ephesus. Quote, Among the mysteries of ancient times, Ephesus holds a unique position. You will remember that in considering the part played by Alexander the Great in the evolution of the West, I also had to mention this mystery of Ephesus. Let us try to see wherein lies the peculiar importance of this mystery. It was a cosmic experience, this sun experience and moon experience. In the mysteries of Ephesus in Asia Minor, the pupil had to undergo experiences of quite a different character. Here, the pupil experienced in a particularly intense manner the whole of his or her being, that which later found such perfect expression in the opening words of John's Gospel. Quote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. In Ephesus, the pupil was led not before two statues, as in the Hibernian mysteries, but before one, the statue that is known as the Artemis, Diana, of Ephesus. Identifying themselves, as I said yesterday, with this statue was fullness of life, which abounded everywhere in life. The pupil lived his way into the cosmic ether. And above, in the airy element, the cosmic thoughts were born. The cosmic soaring thoughts that work creatively in the earthly substance. 
Majestic and powerful was the impression that the human being received at Ephesus when he was shown how in his own speech lived the microcosmic echo of what had once been macrocosmic. And the pupil of Ephesus, when he spoke or she spoke, felt an insight come to him through the experience of speech working into the cosmic word. Among the mysteries of ancient times, Ephesus holds a unique position. You will remember that in considering the part played by Alexander in the evolution of the West, on the birthday of Alexander the Great, we behold the flames of fire burst forth from the temple of Ephesus. Alexander the Great is born and finds his teacher Aristotle. And it is as though from out of the ascending flames of Ephesus, a mighty voice went forth for those who were able to hear it. They found a spiritual Ephesus far and wide over the earth and let the old physical Ephesus stand in men's memory as its center, as its midmost point, unquote. So we see from these quotes the meaning behind the twin births of Artemis and Apollo, the sun and moon mysteries. We also see the connection between Logos, John the Evangelist, Mary, and Ephesus. I'm also intrigued by the festivals of Artemis, where we can see echoes in many of the Christian festivals surrounding Mary. While the nativity of Artemis was in March, Mary is in September, the month of May is really interesting that it is currently the month of Mary. How this relates to Black Madonnas is also interesting. Sibylle, the ancient mother goddess that predates Artemis and other goddesses of Greek and Roman tradition, is black in color in her artistic presentations. Artemis is also black and is a virgin goddess associated with childbirth. She has a male counterpart, her brother the sun god, Apollo. Early artistic presentations of Christ have him in Apollo-like configurations. While some later statues of Artemis have her with numerous pendulous breasts, specifically the Artemis of Ephesus. This is interesting. Biblical scholar and author Dr. Sandra, Sandra Glon argues that these are actually not breasts, mainly because the appendages have no nipples, that the items are actually amulets hearkening to the ancient goddesses of Isis and Ishtar as protection for women in labor. Mary is often pictured standing on a crescent moon with stars above her head. As the virgin of the apocalypse, she is clothed with the sun, and the infant she carries is of the sun. I'm also struck that the ancient procession of Artemis is echoed in the processions of various images of Black Madonnas that are carried through towns and cities during times of crisis as a healing gesture. Many, many miracles associated with Black Madonnas 
helping to wipe out various plagues after processions, I find very interesting. That Mary got her official paperwork and title at Ephesus as the God-bearer is also significant. For me, these interesting associations all point to the evolution of the mysteries, for which we now must decipher for ourselves as part of modern initiation. It is also of note that the Ephesian mysteries surround Artemis involve, as Steiner tells us, quote, and above the airy element, the cosmos thoughts were born, the soaring cosmic thoughts that work creatively in earthly substance. Majestic and powerful was the impression that the human being received at Ephesus when he or she was shown how in his own speech lived the microcosmic echo of what once had been macrocosmic. And the pupil of Ephesus, when he spoke, when she spoke, felt an insight come to him through the experience of speech into the working of the cosmic word. It is interesting to me, me, this is me, no more quote there. It is interesting to me how so much of the imagery of Mary, specifically of the Black Madonnas, have these stars above their heads. The images of Joachim and Anna, the parents of Mary, picture conceiving her by hugging and touching their foreheads. In some of the ancient texts regarding the birth of Mary, the legends state that Anna was surrounded in light and disappeared for a bit, only to reappear with the infant Mary in her arms. This is quite a labor, if you ask me. We also see in icons and paintings, when Mary is being visited by the Archangel Gabriel, she is reading a book. So we can see this evolution of the mysteries, the as above, so below, of cosmic wisdom through the Logos, the cosmic words spoken in the prologue of John, the book of John, the Gospel of John, which was written in Ephesus, of all places, manifesting in creation as well as the image of the Logos, Christ Jesus. We can see the evolution of this mystery of creation, of birth, from the cosmos to the earthly, all facilitated by the divine feminine, first by Artemis and then by Mary. It's not for nothing in terms of understanding spiritual evolution that Artemis's temple was destroyed on the very day of the birth of Alexander the Great. Through his life, journey, and conquering activities, he brought Hellenization, or the process of rational thinking, to a large swath of known civilization throughout Europe, northwestern Africa, and southwestern Asia. Rational thinking even though it may be hard to recognize due to the behavior of many leaders in the Christian movement, especially certain current people on television. But rational thinking is actually a prerequisite to comprehending the Christ event. In fact, Steiner tells us in the Karma Lectures of a great council held in the spiritual world where Alexander the Great was present. This council was involved in the transmission of cosmic wisdom to earthly wisdom. 
I think it's very profound, the connection between the heavens and the earth, pictured with Mary and the stars above her head or the reading of a book, as she is told about her participation in what is to become. I think it is profound, these evolutions of the mysteries at Ephesus. Initially, initiates were to stand before Artemis to learn of the sun and moon mysteries, to embrace and comprehend the cosmic word logos, and to live into the comprehension and embodiment of the cosmic ether, the etheric body or life body. Is it any wonder that Artemis was sought by women in childbirth, where they were participating in helping other humans come to the earth? Childbirth, being born in the flesh, is the ultimate model of the divine word, the logos of creation manifesting on earth. It is also of note that the Black Madonnas in particular are seen as healing images. The procession of Black statue of Artemis is echoed by the medieval, uh, up to the present, procession, the present processions of Black Madonnas as agents of healing through communities in crisis. Healing the physical involves working with the etheric body. So many connections, so much to ponder, and so much gratitude for all the efforts that the spiritual world, through both the ancient goddesses and currently through the cosmic virgin mother Mary, through her gestures during her earthly life, as well as inspiration from the heavenly realms. Thanks again for listening, and a special thanks to my Patreon supporters, one-time donors, and for all of you who like, share, and subscribe. If you would like to receive all the materials and recordings of the talks in South Africa, check out the link below. So until next time, blessings on your journey.